I went to the gates of hell and I found a way out. Growing up, I just wanted to be a better man than my father. And here I was in a prison cell, detoxing from heroin with a rope around my neck. And it was this deep regret. I wanted to escape. I didn't want to die. I left prison with nothing. Dad was a heroin addict, mum was an alcoholic. Everyone rejected me. And for a long time, it felt like they were right. But I could trust that little flicker in my heart of love. And so I'm carrying the ancestral trauma. I couldn't truly understand me without understanding their journey. One of the things we've lost is these beautiful sacred traditions that help educate us. So we have to go back and we have to look at the things that happened in our life. My responsibility is to create spaces where young men and elder men and women can come together and heal. I don't think we're ever meant to have it all figured out. We're just meant to learn and grow so we can better equip the next generation. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. My guest today is Michael Maisie. At one point in his life, Michael was one of London's most prolific young offenders. He spent most of his teens in Feltham Young Offenders Institute. In fact, he was confined there three times for robbery, assault and attempted murder. He spent the majority of his childhood in Isleworth on the Ivy Brit estate and by the age of 12 was smoking crack and, as a result of childhood trauma, had learned that life was tough and the only way to survive was to be mean and violent. Aged just 18, while serving at Feltham, Michael attempted suicide in his cell during a heroin detox, but was cut down by a warden and saved. And saved he was. Michael now mentors young offenders and addicts and has been sober for 15 years. He's married and a father to two girls. He set up the SIP project, that's CIP for Change is Possible, a not-for-profit organisation based in Devon, dedicated to offering emotional support and transformational workshops to help people become the person they want to be. As you can imagine, Michael's life lessons are well worth hearing, which is why I'm delighted to welcome him onto the Emma Gunn Show. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Thank you, Emma. Very good intro. <laughs> You're so welcome. I mean, I'm not even going to lie to listeners. We've got really into it before you've even hit record. <laughs> we have. We got it's pretty deep. Got intense. <laughs> um, and we're going to get even deeper, I think. Yeah, let's do it. I'm, I'm game. Um it's quite nerve-wracking just to talk about the introduction, to sit in front of somebody and list off things like attempted robbery, attempted or robbery, attempted murder, mm -hmm. time in prison, suicide attempt, and not feel a little bit, how is that going to make this person feel? Mm. Um, how does it make you feel when you hear 
that said? Um, a, a bit of a mixture of emotions, really. I think, um, you know, sadness is one of them because, you know, I share my story to help reduce human suffering. You know, I feel like it's my way of understanding everything I went through, but also recycling everything I went through into something positive. But ultimately, at the heart of it was a young boy who was physically and sexually abused. And it's his story. It's that little boy's story. And that little boy was me. So I feel some sadness and grief when I share that story. But I do it in the hope to reduce human suffering. And that's my beautiful burden that I must carry till the day I die. How does one go from the kid who suffers that abuse, who has those experiences, and is now able to be so focused and dedicated on helping other people? That's a massive transition. And some might say one has to choose that path, and it's perhaps not the easiest one to choose. It might be easier to choose resentment, a woe is me attitude, but you've gone in completely the opposite direction from where a lot of people might assume you would have gone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and look, I, I don't want to sit here and try and take credit for that because it was suffering that brought me to a rock bottom. You know, my best thinking landed me in a prison cell with a rope around my neck wanting to die. And it was a real moment where I asked for help. I wasn't, I wasn't religious. I didn't believe in God. But when I was laying on the floor in a padded cell, I was like, if there's something out there, I need some help. I really need some help right now. And I know it might be cringy for some of your listeners to hear, but after the back, off the back of asking for help, I didn't feel alone anymore. I can't really explain what it was. I didn't see uh, a man riding a white horse up in the clouds. I didn't see any of that. But I didn't feel as alone anymore. And then suddenly when I left prison, I found myself doing and saying things that I wouldn't have normally done. So I wouldn't say that I chose this life. I would say I asked for help and help came and and, and here I am today, and I feel it's my obligation to give back. I ask all of my guests what their relationship is like with risk. And when I asked you about your biggest risk, you said it was that moment where you decided to take your life in mm -hmm. your prison cell. And I mentioned in the introduction there that a warden came and found you. When you asked for help, was the warden cutting you down, bring, bringing you back to life, I believe? you had Were you unconscious? Yeah, so... It's, it's funny because I was so desperate to die. I'm detoxing in, in a prison cell from heroin. And suicide was this idea that was like really far away in my mind. I knew of the, on my second prison sentence, there was a young guy who, who killed himself. So I knew I, how to do it. I knew that I've got the means in this cell to end my own life. But it was an idea that seemed quite far away. But the longer the detox went on, and um, the detox is banned now, that type of detox is like an enhanced detox that flushes the drugs out of your system way too quickly. Um, and it's banned now. But the detox slowly brought that idea of escaping the pain I was going through. It brought it really close. And so 
I was convinced I was going to get it wrong. You know, I thought I'm in such a mess. Like I'm bound to get this wrong. For, I probably won't succeed first time. And I was so desperate to die. But it was, it's, it's strange that as soon as the rope tightened and I realized I couldn't escape, I wanted to escape. I didn't want to die. You immediate, well, I immediately tried to take it off. You know, and um, I remember when I, when we wrote uh, my life story and the ghostwriter said to me, what went through your head before? And I'd never thought about it before. There moments before I went unconscious, but it was remembering all the people I loved and having a lot of regret that I couldn't be better than my dad. You know, I grew up and my dad left before I was one. My dad was a heroin addict and he used to be uh, violent towards my mum. So growing up, I just heard bad things about my dad and I really always wanted to just be better than him. I wanted to be a better man than my father. And here I was in, in a prison cell detoxing from heroin with a rope around my neck and it was this deep regret and sadness that like I couldn't be better than him. And then that was it. I was I went unconscious and the next thing I remember seeing a light and sort of coming around thinking I could hear voices and it was the two prison officers shouting at each other and the light I could see was on the on the ceiling of my prison cell that I was laying on the floor and they were doing CPR on me and then yeah once I was breathing again they carried me by my wrists and my ankles and like tossed me into a, a padded cell where everything's padded, the, the walls, the, the floor, um, even the, the taps in the, in the sink, they're like a button sunken into the wall. But I just, I just, I, I was on the padded cell, crawled up in the fetal position, crying, crying, crying out for help. Just like, please help me. I don't even know what I was I was asking for help for. I was just like, please help me. If there's something here, please help me. I need some help. And that was it. it was, it's really strange reliving that with you, Emma, because in that moment of desperation, something changed. I didn't feel so alone in my heart anymore. And it wasn't like this bolt of lightning or... Like I said before, a man on a white horse in a, in the clouds, it was just this feeling of not feeling alone. It was like a tiny little flame of love in my heart. And I, and I trusted that. And, and, and that was ultimately the thing that kept me going through all the difficult times. Cause you know, I left prison with nothing, no qualifications, no GCSEs. I had no parents. Mum and dad couldn't read or write. Dad was a heroin addict, mum was an alcoholic. But I could trust that feeling I had. I could trust that little flicker in my heart of love. So that's, that's all I had to go off. And I, and I trusted that and, and I trust that now more than anything. And, and that little flicker is a big fire in my heart now that burns brightly to bring light into this world so others don't have to suffer. You said that it was the biggest risk and I think listening to you tell that story and thank you because I imagine that can't be the easiest thing to relive. 
there's the moment before. And I guess when you make that decision, you think that it's going to, I don't know, uh, solve a problem or you feel you must feel very, very certain about it to take those actions with the bedsheet, to, to do all the things that you have to do in order to execute the plan. And then, then there's that split second where you try and save yourself. And I wonder whether it's that, whether I think we can often think that someone is going to save us, but actually you showed up and whether there was a sort of a sudden, you didn't feel so alone in the world because you were going to save yourself. And it's often, I think people experience that metaphorically, but I think you maybe experienced it very actually of, I was prepared to do this, but actually when it came to it, I wasn't going to let it happen. I, for me, when listening to that story, I'm thinking that must have been something that went round in your head of, I didn't really want it. Well, it's interesting you see it that way because I see it as more of a spiritual thing. You know, like um, I, I didn't want it, but at that point it was too late. It was happening. It was like it was already moving in that direction. Um, so it wasn't, I don't see it as really me that saved myself, you know. You know, I remember like a, a week later after that, the prison officer who cut me down come in and said to me, I was sitting, it was about 3 a.m. in the morning. He said, I was sitting there doing a crossword and I don't know why I decided to check the cells. He said, but let me tell you this, Michael, if I had started on the first floor or if I had started on the left-hand side of the wing, you'd have been dead. He said, I started on the ground floor on the right-hand side of this wing and you were three doors in and you were already blue and unconscious. He was like, you might have survived if I started on the left side, but you'd have severe brain damage from the lack of oxygen. So I don't see how in, in the arc of that story, how I played a part in saving myself at all. I, I believe something greater saved me and I'm not talking about religion. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about either that's all a coincidence or coincidence is spirit, God's way of remaining anonymous. You know, mm. and, and, and I look, when you say the word God, some people freak out, right? And I used to as well, right? It's got a lot of a bad reputation and I'm not a religious guy. I'm not promoting any type of religion, but in that moment, that's the easiest way for me to try and understand that story. Mm. That there was a big spiritual aspect to what happened there. And, and then what's happened since. So, yeah. Does it feel like a responsibility then if there was, would you say an intervention? I think it's interesting, isn't it? With spirituality, we're sort mm -hmm. of like pussyfooting around the vocabulary that we're all really comfortable using, mm -hmm. but did it feel like some sort of intervention and feeling that, did you think I now have a responsibility to do the right thing because it could have gone a completely different way? Um, I don't feel like it's a responsibility, um, but I do feel like it would be really sad if I didn't use that. 
Because ultimately, look, there can't be a testimony without a test. And how big your test is really will define how powerful your testimony is. And my test was really big. I went to the gates of hell, right? And I found a way out. And, and then loads of stuff's happened and my life story's been published. And people come, people come to me, people who suffer. And so I believe when you get to that point, then it becomes a responsibility. Then it's like, okay, the, these people are coming to you now, suffering, not because of something you learned in a textbook, not because of something you heard on a podcast. It's because you've lived through this. They're coming to you because you've lived through it. So what are you going to give them? Well, I'm going to give you the same thing that worked for me. Can you talk to me about what it's like when you have something like that happen and the person that you are in one moment is totally different from the person that you are in the next moment and intend to become. And what happens when the people around you, or how do people respond to that? Because I think sometimes in life, we see people as being one thing. And actually when they're trying to grow or change, perhaps it's hard to make room for that. Cause you're like, no, no, you're that person. I know you as that person. That's my reality. Uh -huh. That can be quite a tough thing to fight against. Uh -huh. Did you have that experience? Mm. Where it was massive for me, Emma, massive. Cause you know, I came from, you know, a council estate, um, and we had a lot of unspoken rules, you know, like we had really apparent spoken rules, like snitches get stitches, silly things like that. Right but there was unspoken rules like you don't you don't cry you don't show emotion um you don't let anyone disrespect you without there being violence but then there was also this other one which was an unspoken rule was like uh don't go changing too much don't walk away from this way of life of crime and drug dealing you know don't go changing too much because if you do we're gonna be like look at him he's changed who does he think he is he thinks he's better than us blah 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 and that's why um, a big thing when I run these workshops in schools and prisons is like um, true friends are the ones who will celebrate when you're winning. So if you're winning and you're happy, a true friend will clap and cheer you on. And um, sadly, that wasn't my experience. You know, when I got a job, I had a really, you know, how everyone viewed it it was a terrible job i was my first job when i come out of prison was a litter picker and i'd go to work with one of them litter picking sticks that pick up bits of litter and and some orange plastic bags and my council uniform and they would laugh at me they'd be like what are you, what are you doing like they couldn't understand like i learn more money on this street corner in one day than you will in one whole week and you're going around picking up other people's litter and um, that was one of the hardest things for me in changing my life is facing the rejection and judgment of all of my friends. Everyone rejected me and all of them judged me. And for a long time, it felt like they were right because I was lonely and I was broke and I wasn't making any progress really. And they were all like driving nice cars, out drinking, partying, having lots of fun, sleeping with loads of girls, 
you know, and, and I'm like sort of struggling just to keep my head above water and judged by a lot of people as being weird for trying to take a different path in life. And so that's part of the, one of the biggest reasons why I share this story is that, you know, it's a lonely path. There's, if you choose to walk this path of self-development, of changing your life, some people are either going to grow with you or they're going to have to go without you. And that's just a hard, cold truth. It's like we should never shame anyone for not growing in the same direction as us. We should invite them to grow with us. So I see that a lot uh, with some people now. It's like, you know, I'm out here living my best life. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. It's like, let's not judge them because we were them. Let's invite them to level up with us and we go on this journey together. Sadly, that wasn't the case for most of my friends. Most of my friends um, died, committed suicide or still in prison. Uh, yeah, out of all of them, I'm really the only one who's, who's really done anything. And that's sad. But that again is even more fuel to keep doing what I'm doing. Why do you think, or have you thought that hard about it? Because it must be a difficult thing to confront about why you are the only one and why that hasn't been the experience that your friends have had. There's a lot of things that go into that. Part of it is our culture here. First of all, there is no culture in the UK. I think the price we pay for multiculturalism is that there is no culture. We have a very diluted version of lots of different cultures, but there's nothing really sacred that remains. And I think there's a price to pay for that. Because when you look back at indigenous tribes around the world, there was a lot of sacred traditions that really helped young men and women uh, learn what it means to be an adult. And I think in the pursuit of creating a multicultural society, one of the things we've lost is actually these beautiful sacred traditions from all around the world that help educate us on like masculinity and femininity. You know, one of them would be a rite, a rite of passage. Uh, all the tribes around the world used to have a thing called a rite of passage where young men would be taken through an initiation process. That process was called a rite of passage. After you'd completed that, you'd be seen as a man in the village and the elder men would take you through a process that would teach you about healthy masculinity. Now, we've completely lost touch with that. A lot of people wouldn't even know what rite of passage means. And I think that's one of the prices we've, we've paid um, in trying to um, just all mix and blend together. I think we've diluted a lot of things that are really sacred. And so when you look out, how does that translate into my, my council estate where the majority of people were immigrants? My mum was an Irish immigrant and the majority of parents were immigrants with all different cultures. We're reduced to just people who had to work to survive. There was no place or time for culture or sacred traditions because life was so hard because we were so poor. And so in the absence of any culture, and in the absence of any sacred traditions, young men will create their own. 
And we see that with gangs. Um, we see that with, you know, um, going to pubs. You see that we're going to football matches, you know, like all, all of these things are really quite dangerous when you look at them, you know, and, and a lot of things you see at football matches are okay because it's at a football match, but would it be okay out on the street? You know, a thousand grown men screaming at an 18 year old boy on the football pitch because he didn't kick it how you wanted him to kick it. If that happened in the street, would that be okay? No, but because we're in a football stadium, it's okay. So all of these things play a part and we have to change it. And, that, and that's why I, I set up the CIP is my responsibility is to create spaces where young men and elder men and women can come together and grow and heal. It's about a sense of belonging, isn't it? That is perhaps missing. When you were talking about rites of passage, I was thinking, right, okay. I immediately thought about passing your driving test and getting your heart broken for the first time. That's what I thought about. But when you're, but what you're talking about, right, passage wise, is not is not that stuff. But I do think um, the sense of community doesn't exist anymore, and that's how you knew where you belonged. And so that's obviously it. Seems like that's what you're trying to do with the SIP project. Yeah, have a community where people can belong, and also learn from people who've got way more life experience. It is about community. But it's also about incorporating the sacred traditions. So one of the big things we do is we invite everyone who comes through our workshops is to really get in touch with your culture and bring it through. Because back in the day when we were tribes, riches weren't always based on how much money you had. It was really on like the culture. So they'd be like, they a different tribe would visit and they'd be like, we sing this song and we cook this food. And we do our traditions this way. And that's how riches were exchanged through culture. And so a big thing for us is like our culture was completely destroyed, really. When you go back in our history here, the ancient people of uh, Britain, um, the Romans invaded, and then the Anglo-Saxons invaded, then the Normans invaded. Um, and so the culture here is, 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 is lost so long ago. But one of the uh, things I'd done when I, um, when I got sober, I, I attended my first sweat lodge ceremony, Native American sweat lodge ceremony. And I got introduced to real culture, Native American culture. And that's probably the closest culture because that was probably the last place to be colonized. Um, their culture is still intact as, as, as close as it can be. Obviously they suffered you know, a complete genocide. It's horrific what, what the colonizers done to the Native Americans, right? But their culture managed to remain intact. So what we get now is as close and to as pure as what it was then. And so that's what we do at our workshops is, is bring through some of the Native American traditions and also invite people to get in contact with their own culture. You know, the songs your people sang, the traditions, the food, um, because there's so much beauty and understanding in that. And you wouldn't understand it until you're in the middle of a ceremony and you hear someone sing a song that your ancestors would have sung and you feel a tear drop from your eye and you're like, wow, that's my ancestors living on through me. I'm honoring them 
and their journey to bring me here. You know, we're here as a result of our ancestors taking risks, all the twists and turns that they had to do to bring life forward. How do we honor them? We keep their culture alive. So it, it's piecing yourself together internally without any external validation, which is, I think, where culture has definitely moved us towards. Is like you look up, it's such a breakneck turn, but thinking about TikTok, the amount of people who are on TikTok doing dances, waiting for people to like them, like the dancers and validate them. This is the polar opposite of that because it's like the work comes from within. It's like getting to know who you are and do you like that and what do you like about it rather than presenting in a certain way and seeing what the world responds to, mm. which, well, you know, like, could be oversimplifying, but, <laughs> but you know, yeah, I, mean. I think you can't truly understand yourself until you have gone back and researched your own culture. You know, like we, we spoke a little bit before, one of the things that I struggled with growing up was not feeling clever enough. You know, my mum and dad couldn't read or write. My mum come from a gypsy background, Irish traveller. She was born in a caravan at the side of a road in Dublin. She never went to school. Her parents never went to school. Her parents before her never went to school. So I had like, so, so here I am, two, three years sober, feeling like completely inadequate, no qualifications, no GCSEs. But the weight of that seems really heavy on me. I'm like, this feels really heavy. You know, I had other people who was on a similar journey and they was like, yeah, I ain't got any qualifications either. And I'm like, yeah, but it seems like a heavier burden for me. And I only truly understood that when I went back. And I was like, crikey, my mum and dad couldn't read or write and they couldn't read or write. And then you go back, back. And so I'm carrying the ancestral trauma of all of my ancestors. So I couldn't truly understand me without understanding their journey. And then in understanding their journey, why were they the way they are? Why were all my Irish ancestors like that? And then understanding the oppression of the British, that actually we colonized Ireland, the British colonized Ireland. They made it illegal to speak Gaelic. Could you imagine like Russia invading England now and saying it's illegal to speak English? That happened in Ireland. And the saddest part is that Britain still own the north of Ireland. And that's controversial. Some people won't like to hear that. You know, some unionists might, might disagree with that. But that's the truth. We invaded the whole of Ireland and we let them keep the, and we kept the north. So when you see the oppression of the Irish and then the, the oppression of the Irish traveling community, it helps me understand, okay, there's, there's a wound of my ancestors of the Irish who were, who were oppressed and then the travelers were oppressed even more. They were like real second-class citizens. To be a traveler in Ireland was worse than being Irish. And, um, and all of that's landing on my doorstep. And it's my obligation to keep, keep them alive, you know? So that's why I, that's why I, I, I try and learn, um, you know, I speak, I speak little bits of Gaelic and, and I know some of the songs and I know the history because how else do we honor them? There is no other way, you know, sadly, Irish people have been reduced to being a drunken fool. That's what they're known for around the world. Irish pubs. Yep. And March 18th. Yeah. March 17th. Yeah. And I suspect they're known for that because of all of the oppression. 
they drank to get rid of the pain of all the oppression. 700 years of British rule, illegal to speak your own language. Did you, um, you're making me think about Tutankhamun. You ever been to the exhibition? No. So what they have uh, established is that um, he was a very young pharaoh king and they wanted to disappear him. Other people wanted the power. Mm -hmm. And it's believed in that culture that you only truly die when the last person on earth says your name for the last time. And so in terms of the kings, the pharaohs, the one that is immortal and has lasted beyond is Tutankhamun. <laughs> <laughs> and it reminded me of what you were saying about keeping things alive. If you keep saying it, if you keep talking it, if mm. you keep sharing, mm -hmm. then you're, yeah, you're honoring something that was, that could be easily forgotten. Yeah. And that was the intention with Tutankhamun. Wow. I like that story. Yeah. yeah. Probably haven't told it as well as the archaeologists. <laughs> so no, uh, nice. I'll send you the, the link to the Wikipedia page. Yeah. Um, you mentioned there about not feeling clever enough. And when mm -hmm. I asked you about excuses, mm -hmm. you said that was one that you will perhaps think of. But then when we were speaking before we hit record, you didn't call, you, you were, we discussed the word excuse mm -hmm. of whether it's actually, you had a different way mm. of describing it, which I liked. Yeah. So, for me, excuse can be used as a baton to beat yourself over the head with. For me, not being clever enough, I choose to call it a suspicion of self. So based on the data I've got from my ancestors and everything way back then, the suspicion is that I'm not clever enough based on everything that went before me. And in that is a, being able to own that for myself and be with whatever feelings come up as a result of that you know, which is a sadness mm. to be with that sadness and then give myself an opportunity to take a new picture in my mind. Okay. If that suspicion of self wasn't true, what might that look like? Mm. And then I would look for data to prove that theory to be true. Well, you've built a successful business and you've wrote a best-selling book and it's won awards and oh, this is a bit of data here to argue that and you know it for me and it might not work for everyone but that's sort of how i be with all of me without trying to do a quick fix of trying to snap myself out of it is is getting to a bit more of a debate about it mm -hmm. looking at all the data and then i find it a little bit easier to move forward it's um yeah the brain is it's designed to picture all of the worst case scenarios to protect you from something bad happening so as a result we have this kind of negative spin on how we view the world but i think reframing is so valuable and in my recovery from um depression and anxiety we've actually instead of sitting at home thinking this isn't going my way because people hate me i'm not clever enough i don't look the right way all of the things that I had just assumed were working against me and just sort of like like getting a pin and popping that bubble and saying, what if it's because of these things and actually these things I have agency over? Like I can go out and network a bit more or I can read more, I can do all of these things. That was such a big shift, but it seems like such a small one because it's like, well, obviously that might not be true. But we can believe all of these things are true and they can really get in our way and hold us back. And actually having the mental fortitude to say, 
just going to assume for a second that all of that stuff I believe to be true is actually false. And what if it was the exact opposite? How would life look then? That I think can be such a powerful moment. Mm. I agree. But in the middle of that, it feels like a sort of magic quick fix solution. Mm. And I think a lot of this work that I do is about really getting away from this quick fix type thing, mm -hmm. because ultimately, unless you really take time to be with what you're with, it will come back. Yeah. You know, like it takes time and it takes time to be with that. And I think it really helps if you're in a relationship with someone where you can bring all of you. You know, that's that's been my experience of what intimacy is. Intimacy isn't sex and cuddles on the sofa. It's like, can I bring all of myself to you and you still love me? Can I bring you the darkest parts of my soul, the part of me that feels like I'm stupid and I'm not clever enough and the shame that comes with that? Can I bring all of that to you and you not reject me? And if you don't reject me in the middle of that, I feel so close to you that the only word to define that is intimacy and it has nothing to do with sex or physical contact. And, you know, we could talk a lot about intimacy, but that's been a big type of medicine for me is having people around you that you can bring all of you to again and again. Were you trying to project a particular type of person before then? Were you trying to withhold the darker parts? Yeah. You? Yeah, 100%. That's what I learned. That's what I learned growing up. You know, and I remember there was a there was a moment growing up in when I was in my gang on my council estate. And a friend of mine, I, I won't say his name, it's not fair on him, but his mum died of an overdose. His dad went to prison. His mum was there grieving him and got into uh, crack and heroin and... She took an overdose, she died. He come down and found her. We was only about 13, 14 at the time. And um, social services came. He might have to go into care, but luckily he went with his, his nan. Anyway, like eventually we were all out on the council estate and he comes over and he just bursts into tears. Now, all of us young lads in a gang, we don't know how to hold that or what to do with that. So a lot of the elder kids who were like three or four years older than us were like, oh my gosh, he's lost it. Oh my God, I can't believe he's crying, man. Seriously, he's bloody lost the plot. Like no one was able to give him a hug or empathize with him or anything. What I learned from that experience is that my sadness is not welcome here. So do not bring your sadness because if you bring your sadness, you get judged and ridiculed. So how does that play out as I get older? As I get older, I learn to put other bits of myself in a little box. Bits of myself that I believe aren't really welcome. And then I tell this story, this story when I met my wife and we would sit and watch a movie and it would all be really nice. And I'd be like, I don't like this. I want to go. I want to go. And I I could go in lots of ways. I could physically go, get up. I've got to go to the gym or I've got to work. Or I could know that's coming at the, that evening. So I work late. Or I could just pick my phone up and go on my phone. 
Yeah. And I was lucky that my wife had done enough work herself to check that out with me, to say, I've noticed that in these moments where everything's okay, you get really uncomfortable and you want to leave. And I wonder, is it something to do with me? Like, is it, is it, are you not that into me or? And I was like, just like, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. And like, I went away and I saw a therapist um, who's a female therapist. All my therapists up to that point have been male. And I, I specifically asked for a female therapist to try and guide me in, in this. And she said to me, um, growing up, Michael, all the people who you loved, did they hurt you? And I remembered I went back and I was like, crikey, every single person who was meant to love me hurt me and let me down and betrayed me. Um, most of them beat me and abused me. And then here I am with someone I love and I'm meant to somehow let my walls down and trust completely. And, and here I am, I'm wondering why I can't. And so we made a deal, me and this therapist. She says, I want you to try with me sharing with me the darkest moments and the darkest parts of yourself. What do you bump up against when you sit down with your wife, Sasha? And I was like, my, my thing is if I tell her who I really am with all my fears and insecurities, she's going to think, whoa, that dude is so messed up and she's going to reject me. And if she rejected me, that would be so painful because I love her so much. So she was like, um, I want you to take all that mess to her and just like a news reporter telling a story, you're just going to tell the story. And I was like, you're crazy. This is, this isn't going to end well. Um, and she was, and she I remember one thing she said to me, she said, love is bigger than this mess. And if you love her and she loves you, it can handle this. And so I went and I, I sat in front of her and I told her, you know, in the moments where we should be, enjoying each other I feel completely terrified like you're going to hurt me just like everyone else hurt me and I'm worried if I show you this part of myself you'll reject me and think I'm weak so I just true tried to hide it and run and she was like oh, it's so good to hear this because I thought you just wasn't that into me anymore and I was like no it's the opposite I love you so much if you rejected me it would really break me and there I was, age 27, and experienced intimacy for the first time in my life. It took me 27 years to figure it out. Because I never saw it growing up. No one ever modeled that for me. And did it feel like a like you could relax in that moment? Once once that was out on the table. Mm. There was that, and then there's a thing called, I don't know if you're familiar with it, a thing called ego backlash. I'm not, but it sounds, <laughs> okay. it sounds right up my street, Michael. So you often see it when we deliver workshops um, and you support people, a thing happens called ego backlash. So you'll have a real powerful moment and you'll be like, oh my God, I just opened up my heart and had such a beautiful experience. And then the ego goes, oh my God, what have you done? You've said too much. They're judging you. They're thinking how crazy you are, blah, blah, blah. So I had a bit of ego backlash in the middle of that and just reported that back as well. I was like, "Are you sh like, I'm just checking out because right now my head's telling me you're just like saying it's all good, 
because you have to in this moment. Mm -hmm. It's the right thing to do. Is this really where you're at? And just get a reality check on it. And so I got permission from my wife, Sasha. Obviously, I wasn't asking for reality checks every five minutes, but it was like, is it okay for me to, if that happens for me, to just get a reality check every now and again? After the second or third reality check, you realize, cracky, this is my head, mate. My head is trying to beat me up. And then slowly, slowly, you start to see yourself and the world differently and your place in the world. So yeah, intimacy was a massive lesson for me. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. also makes me think about you in the high vis vest with your litter picker mm. in that that was you pursuing your authentic path if you will mm-hmm. and there's a famous saying i'm sure you've heard it in therapy like you can't take everyone with you and so your experience not just with family members but just even when you're just being true to yourself people were disappearing mm-hmm. or well disappearing or I would imagine it would have felt like active loss. Uh And was that the first time that you had had that not happen where someone had actually stuck with you? Um, So there's a character in my book, a lady called Mary, who was just a woman from my community. Her son went to the same school as me. And she could see me turning up to school sometime as a little boy and she knew something wasn't right. And she would always keep an eye out for me. And when I went to prison, she'd always write to me. Um, And she was like (laughs) really religious, really devout Irish Catholic woman. Um, And she would always, you know, go to Lourdes every year and pray for me. And she... um, Despite everything that I'd done, she always saw the little boy who suffered and she always held on to that. And it was really powerful to have that one person. And we didn't see each other all the time. There might be, you know, three, six months we wouldn't see each other. But whenever I saw her, she'd always stop and she'd ask how I was. And so, and I could be open with her and I could share with her, you know, um, some stuff and she didn't reject me. So I wouldn't say, that with Sasha was the first time, but it felt like the first time. 
I know we skirted around religion, but just thinking about Mary going to Lourdes, praying for you, mm -hmm. and then you have this moment in prison. Mm. I immediately in my mind just <laughs> connected the wires. <laughs> and it'd be that would be a really easy connection to make mm. of maybe those were Mary's prayers that showed up for me that day. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, my experience is that, you know, um, prayer works and it doesn't really matter whatever you're praying to. You know, like we talk about this a lot with like, uh, just put it out to the universe and you know, the law of attraction. And it's like, is prayer really that different from that? If you're praying for the goodwill and intentions for someone else, you're really doing the same thing, right? You're putting it out to the universe, trusting that someone might hear it mm. and it might get answered. And as we know from the law of attraction and the success of that book uh, called The Secret, it's like it works, right? You put stuff out, you actively ask for it. Mm. A lot of the time it does come back. So... And I think there's even a, a verse in the Bible around that, asking you shall receive, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I this is where I struggle a little bit because I think this has just been, again, speaking about things getting diluted. Mm. I read Law of Attraction and, uh, well, I didn't finish it because at a certain point I did feel a bit offended by the mm. idea that if you think bad thoughts, you're going to make yourself unwell because, mm. um, I, well, because I just think that can be a really unhelpful thing. But I also think things have moved on in that manifestation, asking the universe for stuff, like people like having a coaster that says, ask, believe, receive. <laughs> for me, for me, I believe that knowing what you want is really important, being able to put it into words, say it out loud. And yes, you can call that asking the universe for it. But I also believe that the stuff that goes hand in hand with that and the reason why it will show up for you is if you put the work in, if you figure out what you're really good at and what you're not good at and what might not be going, why things might be going wrong, using your initiative, learning about the thing that you want. I think there's so much that has to go on behind the scenes mm -hmm. that the idea that you can just go, oh, I want to be successful, mm -hmm. is really, really unhelpful. Because mm -hmm. even though I know you're nodding and I'm clearly on one of my rants, Unfortunately, there will be people out there who are consuming a kind of content where they think it is just about the performative, getting a nice notebook, using a nice new pencil, writing down the things that they want, putting that book back on the shelf and then waiting for them to show up. Mm -hmm. And that simply isn't the case. Yeah. And, and there's more to that, Emma. I'd love to share with you. Go for it. Okay. There's more to this. So this is part of the thing with Western culture is we take something sacred like these sacred teachings and then we monetize it and we create a book and then we create a diary and then we create coasters around it. And it's all it's all really quite sad, to be honest, because we buy into it because we're searching. And I believe what we're really searching for is something sacred, which is our own culture. But there was a young man I mentored in prison back in... Um, Crikey, it would have been 2012. And he got really into the secret, really into it. And this whole manifestation thing. And um, he came out of prison. He got a job as a personal trainer. He was doing really well. Really, it was like it was working. But deep down, he hadn't addressed the wounds that he had around 
that he wasn't good enough. So his dad left when he was really young, similar to me, right? And we identified this when I was working with him in prison. What did you make that mean, dad leaving, before you was even one? Well, I grew up always thinking it was me. So my suspicion of self is like, there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I'm like, okay, if you don't keep an eye on that and do some work around that suspicion of self, that will manifest as well. So how do you treat someone that you deep down believe isn't good enough? Do you think that you would let them create the life beyond your wildest dreams if somewhere deep down you believe you actually don't deserve it? And so he was like, no, no, I'm not focusing on that. I'm focusing on the positive. I'm focusing on the life I want. I was like, okay. And he, and he had this life and he got the car. Loads of people in his community judged him. And he got out one day, parked outside Tesco's, got out. Someone made a comment to him. He beat him up. He went back to prison for GBH section 18 and he's still in there now. He got 15 years. And so this is like the risk we have with these type of, you know, quick fixes. Ultimately, the people at the bottom of the ladder paid a price. You know, like it's not really helping. For a lot of people, it makes it a lot worse because you're not addressing the core issues. And that shows up as self-sabotage. Yeah. Like, I don't deserve all of this stuff. Why would I deserve it when my own father left before I was one? That's what needs to be healed before you start trying to manifest stuff. But how do you... Someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, I want some good stuff, but clearly I haven't got the stuff that maybe I've wanted to attract into my life or I've wanted to work for. You're standing in front of the mirror. What's the first step, Michael? Like, How do you... Like, okay, let's just put it out on the table. There is work to be done. You're going to have to do the difficult stuff, the introspective work. But where do you begin? You have to go back. People hate that when I say that. I don't want to go back. I don't want to look at my childhood. I don't want to go back. And a lot of them are carrying guilt. I don't want to make my mum and dad bad. I love them. I care about them. They were great. And it was like, look, let's just be honest here. Okay? We had our culture completely stripped away from us. And then we had World War I. And then we had the Industrial Revolution that took one of the parents, nine times out of ten the father, out of the home. So there was only the mum raising sons and daughters. Yeah, not enough. Then anything that was remaining after World War I and the Industrial Revolution, we didn't have World War II. So a load more men got killed. And here we are now, trying to mop up the pieces. So this isn't about beating your parents up. Like they don't know what they don't know either. They had to live through, you know, it's only like two generations ago. It's World War II. People were on rations. Yeah. So they, it's impossible for any, and there's no such thing as a perfect parent, but it's impossible that we all come out unscathed from all of that. We haven't. Mm -hmm. So we have to go back and we have to look at the things that happened in our life and then what we made that mean about ourselves. So to give you an example, there was a young lady who came on one of our workshops, had a very privileged up upbringing, very successful, but her dad worked a lot and at times would be very stressed out and was never violent, but would have sudden outbursts. You'd shout at her, get really cross. 
So in his absence, she made it mean that she's not important. Work's more important than her. And then when he would come home and she would be excited to see him and he'd be stressed and overwhelmed and would sometimes shout at her to calm down, give me some time, give me some space. She would put her happiness, joy and excitement in a bag and tell herself that is not welcome. So when she rocked up to our workshop, she was like, I don't get it. I've got the house, I've got the career, I've got everything, but I'm depressed. And we traced it right back to that moment when she was an eight-year-old girl her dad had been away for work for a week and it was a Friday night and he came home stressed, overwhelmed and she was waiting at the door excited to see him and he said something along the lines of, for God's sake, will you give me a minute to just unpack my stuff? Just please give me a minute. And in that moment, she put all her joy, excitement and happiness to see her father, which is completely normal. She put it in a bag. That's not welcome. In order to get my dad's love, I can't be excited and full of joy. I'm glad you mentioned that example, actually, because I talk about how I like seeing the world through other people's eyes, which is why I do this podcast. And going right back to this introduction that I did for you, you your experiences are quite unique and extreme. And it's easy, therefore, if you're listening to this and you haven't spent any time in prison and you feel as though you've lived a life of privilege, to feel as though you have any right to talk about challenges that you faced, but you've just talked about someone who had a completely different background and completely validated the fact that those things matter. It doesn't matter the kind of comfort that you have, the background that you have. These things still do stick. And before we started recording, we were talking, you asked me about being in recovery and I sort of poo-pooed and shooed away this idea because I said, well, I've sort of got an eating disorder, but I was invalidating it because other people have much worse eating disorders and I know people who have nearly died from them. And so I minimize the experience that I have because it feels silly to take up any space in that conversation when I know other people have had more extreme experiences. Mm -hmm. But what you've demonstrated is that every single story is valid regardless of the comparison to the extremes. Yeah. So I'm going to say something. There's no league table in trauma. I'm going to say that again. There's no league table in trauma. We have four primary emotions, anger, sadness, fear, and joy. Yeah. When I was abused by my uncle, I felt a lot of sadness. When that young girl was shouted at by her father on that Friday night, she felt a lot of sadness. We had a very similar experience. Emotionally, internally, mm. it was the same thing happening. Yeah, the outside thing that happened might have been a bit more severe, but internally we felt exactly the same thing. So there's no league table in trauma. How do you, I know you've talked about going inwards and doing that work and you've talked about getting sober and how that was a massive challenge for you. But there is a path out of, there's recognizing the trauma and then there's living knowing that it existed and not letting it define your future. And I guess that's the real recovery. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think for me, it's important that we don't skip that part and move too quickly to the good life 
you know, it's it's important that you take your time and you really look at it because ultimately that's where the gold is. So the reason my story has been recycled into something positive is because I've spent a lot of time pulling it apart and understanding what I made a lot of that stuff mean. So it has value. And I think if we skip straight to the good part too quickly, we can often miss some of the most important lessons in it. So yeah, for me, it's, it's about um, introducing the idea of time into people's journey of self-development. Um, is like give yourself time because in that there's a lot more value for you and there are other people that you meet you know and I don't believe you ever arrive at this point where you get a certificate and you've graduated you know the longer I've been doing this which is like 15 years now you just realize how little you know the more I learn I'm like gosh there's so much I don't know and that's the beauty of it. I don't think we're ever meant to have it all figured out. We're just meant to learn and grow so we can better equip the next generation. Having it all figured out, I'm glad you said that because I think that's a really tantalizing end goal. And also, again, with social media, and you don't even have to have social media. You can just look at the people that you come into contact with, whether it's at work or in your community where you live, whatever. You can assume that some people have got it all figured out. And also there are people who might project that they've got it all figured out. And actually that used to be something I craved. I was, I would crave being around people who looked like they had it all figured out. Really used to be like, because if I'm near them, then by osmosis I'll, I'll have figured it all out too. Now, if ever I get too comfortable or I feel like, yeah, I, I know that's, I almost know that's a bad day. That sounds really backward, but I almost know, okay, you're missing something. You've mm -hmm. taken the eye off the ball. Mm -hmm. Like just figure out what's going on here because you, you you haven't got it all sorted and nor should you. Mm. And look, let's be honest, um, what all sorted looks like changes very quickly. Mm. You know, not that long ago to have it all sorted was to be a man on social media with a six pack and a Ferrari. And now we're realizing, crikey, there's so much more depth required to men than that. You know, to be a loyal, committed husband and father, most women don't want a guy with a six pack and a Ferrari. They want him to show up when I'm tired and stressed out mm. to give me a break and support our children. And I can feel confident he's able to do that. Mm. That's really what most women want. And it's the same for women. It's like, it's not that long ago we'd see on social media, women with the perfect figure and a beach body and a, and a boob job and perfect eyelashes and all of this stuff. And you realize actually, talking me, <laughs> but you realize actually, you know, it's, it's so much more than that, mm. you know, because all of that goes with age anyway. And what you're left with is the person. Mm. So marry the soul, not the face. <laughs> <laughs> um, I asked you about your regrets mm -hmm. and I want to unpick this with you in the time that we have left because you said that you stayed in toxic friendships for too long. Yeah. And because we've talked about the people that you lost along the way, for good or bad, um, we haven't talked about the people that perhaps you tried to keep around you. Mm. Were they the toxic friendships? It was more so when I got sober. 
and it and I feel sadness sharing this story. I don't think I've ever shared this on on a podcast or in, even in my book because I've always felt a sense of I don't know responsibility or guilt around naming this. But when I got sober, there was a group of us and we would all hang out and we'd go to the local calf and we we were like real rock bottom cases. You know what I mean? And um. And then some of us started doing a bit more work. Like we done, we got sober, and then we done the twelve step program, and then we looked at other addictions, and then we go to some of us went to seminars, and then out of like a group of, I don't know, ten of us, five of us were on a real journey, and out of the five, one of us was really into it, and that one was me. I was like really into learning, and educating, and improving. And because I was got sober with these guys, I hung around with them. I would say the first ten years of my sobriety, you know, and we had a lot of unspoken rules. And one of the unspoken rules wasn't too dissimilar to the ones we had in our council estate. One of them was, "Don't be too successful. Don't go making us look bad now. Don't shine too brightly. You better turn your light down. You're making me look bad over here." how that manifested is when good things were happening for me, there wasn't really a celebration. So I felt less inclined to talk about the good things that were going on in my life because they were still struggling so much in theirs. And I remember someone said that to me is like when I met someone and they come to one of my workshops and he was an elder himself. And he said, you see that dimmer switch, you keep dimming your light to, to please other people. He's like, I want you to turn that dimmer switch up and start shining brightly. And that was it. When I'd done that, I faced the same thing I faced from the kids on the council estate when I was a litter picker, was judgment and ridicule. He, he, who does he think he is? He's changed. He's forgot where he come from, all of this sort of stuff. And it took me a long time to, to accept that for what it is and, and let go with love. You know, a lot of the endings in my life had always happened with a big argument and a FU. And it was like, this doesn't have to be that type of ending. I can just say, I love you and, I, and I'm letting you go. I think, particularly in adults, we don't talk about losing friendships that much and how painful it can be. But also, because we don't talk about it, perhaps as much as it happens, we don't realize how often it's happening. I had this conversation with a friend really recently and it can feel like the worst failure to lose people along the way because you've grown apart, you've fallen out or what those things. And again, it's a little bit of the reframing, isn't it? It's making peace with it by saying, I let them go with love, but they couldn't, I couldn't be who I am if I was still mm. connected to those people. And it's that sort of separation of the guilt, I think, which can be quite hard because it feels like if you lose people, if you fall out with people, that can say something really negative about you. Of course. Of course, especially if people are quite popular and outspoken, they'll, they'll speak to other people to try and get them to believe that you are the problem because mm. they don't want to look within. You know, and I think it comes back to, for me, so you know my relationship with my wife, where I bring all of myself to her. 
So is all of me welcome in my marriage? Yes, it is. Well, is all of me welcome in my friendships? Or am I doing the same thing like, am I taking parts of myself and putting them and hiding them from certain people because I don't want them to feel inadequate? Mm -hmm. And if I'm doing that, then that's no different from the little boy who put parts of himself away not to upset his parents or his uncle. And it's like, well, if if change, if all this work is about change, can I surround myself with people where all of me is welcome? Where when I have a big win, they're applauding me and cheering me on. But also when I'm broken and down in the dumps, they're there to give me a hug. Not to fix me or rescue me. I don't need that. I just want you to hold me, hold space for me. And that's what I choose to do. And sadly, there's very few people in my circle that I've allowed in. You know, there's like three or four men and, and women who I trust truly to do that, who truly cheer me on. Um, and that's the sad part of it, is that we're in a culture of um, compare and despair. Um, and, you know, partly that is fueled by the media and social media. I would imagine for you, there are probably, or are there people who want to cheer you on because you've come so far and by attaching themselves to your success, your journey, it looks good for them. That, have you had to do that filtration as well? Mm, yeah, I, I mean, if if we were to be like completely honest about that, I, I wouldn't be here now if I didn't have a life story and a decent following on social media, you know? And there's lots of, you know, people with stories just as powerful as mine that I meet and I come across in the work I do. And it's the same out in the world with the people that I meet, you know, like you get people who come along with a different agenda. Some people have come along to my workshops with a pen and a notepad and they've wrote down everything that happens and everything that I do and everything that I say and then gone and set up their own workshop and said- I can't believe the front. <laughs> and said, These, uh, this guy is literally reading word for word everything you say and do. And, and, and part of it's a compliment, but when they're charging people thousands of pounds for it, and, and I'm running it as a non-profit for people who are on their ass, excuse my language, for people who are like, fresh out of prison or fresh back from a war zone with PTSD or homeless or struggling with addiction or a single mum. I'm running these workshops where 60% of the people can't afford to be there. And then you're coming and, and taking this sacred teachings that took me 15 years to learn and then selling it for three, four times the amount somewhere else. Well, that's no different to what the colonists done to all the ancient tribes around the world. There's no different to colonialism. You know, but that's been a tough one for me because people have noticed that what our workshops are powerful and they want a bit of it and they think we can monetize this, you know, and, and, and you can, but ultimately I think it comes back to people water always finds its own level mm. and people can tell, have you just learned this from seeing someone else do it or have you actually lived this? We're definitely in the cult of please be my guru at the moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, 
unfortunately, the only people who really get, um, the only people who get harmed by that are the vulnerable ones. Yeah. And that really bothers me. And that's from everything from the kind of stuff that you do, like trans, not what you do, the people ripping you off do, mm. to there's a massive spectrum and it's very displeasing to see. Yeah, it is. It's really sad because, you know, you even see some well-meaning celebrities jumping on this mental health bandwagon now. And look, it, I say well-meaning, I believe their heart's in the right place, right? But it's like, crikey, do you realize that if there's so many voices out there that the ones who actually have lived through this, their voices can't be heard because mm -hmm. there's so many people are shouting about this now because yeah. it's a new cool thing. You know, like, have you even considered that in your pursuit for your next book deal or your next TV show of the people who've actually come back from suicide and depression, like the real low bottom cases? Mm -hmm. You know, so in that, I honor you, Emma, for having me here because my story isn't an easy, easy story for your listeners to hear, but you've chose me to be here. And I'd believe that I'm in that small category of people who have actually lived through this. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation. I, I only you for that. <laughs> Thank you. I do. I say it a lot, but I like seeing the world through other people's eyes. And I would never get to see your experience firsthand. And so to be able to hear it is a real gift. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, do you know, what? I want to get involved or I want to help or if there's anything I can do to support what what is it that someone can do? Well, if if anything I've said has resonated with you and you think you'd like to experience one of our events, just go to our website and book on. If you want to help, um, you could donate. We've got a Just Giving page on our website. Um, you know, we run workshops in schools, colleges, prisons, in in the poorest communities across the the UK, we got free emotional support groups in cities across the UK. So anyone who's struggling with their mental health can go for free. We have online support groups for men and women in men on a Wednesday, women on a Thursday, they're for free. So it's, it's, it's making all of this stuff free and accessible, not run by people who are like college professors. And there's nothing wrong with college professors, by the way, but it's run by people who've been through our program with lived experience. And often it's a lot easier to open up to someone who's been through it themselves than it is to open up to someone who hasn't. Mm. That's been my experience. Um, so, yeah, I guess that would be it. And, you know, come and experience it, train up and, you know, set up your own space. We offer a, a, a good thing where we train people up on these skills and you can open up a group in your community, like a space for people to come and heal. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put the links in the show notes, listeners. So if you want to find any of that, anything that we've discussed, then simply go to the show notes. But genuinely, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you.